Welcome to Herbal Hour, the podcast for those inspired by nature. I'm your host, Dr. Bogdan, and I'm a licensed naturopath and traditional herbalist, bringing you organic discussions with experts in natural medicine, alternative therapies, and holistic mental health. Hippocrates taught us that the doctor treats, but it is nature that heals. So take a deep breath and get comfortable. We hope you enjoy our conversations over a cup of the finest herbal tea. Because in nature, it's always Herbal Hour. All right, welcome to the Herbal Hour. Today we have a return guest, Dr. Alex Hine. He's a board-licensed acupuncturist and doctor of science in oriental medicine, practicing at Inner Alchemy Acupuncture and Herbs in Santa Monica, California. He is the author of Master of the Day and founder of Modern Health Monk, whose YouTube channel has nearly half a million subscribers. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. By the way. All right. So first, I wanted to uh, ask you a little bit more about your uh, qigong practice. So uh, qigong, of course, is an important part of traditional uh, Chinese medicine. So I wanted to see uh, what are some experiences you've had with qigong that are uh, pivotal and what do you think it's useful for? Yeah, well, Qigong goes back thousands of years, right? And there are lots of varying kinds of practices like this in East Asia and even India. Right. I mean, a lot of the yogic breathing practices may even be the precursors to Qigong and the modern day versions of breathwork, basically. So I think if you have to sum up Qigong, the difference between Qigong and let's just say doing physical exercise, because if you see like, you know, I, I've lived in China and I've been back many times, you see old people in the park doing Tai Chi and Qigong. You're like, this is just a bunch of old people waving their hands around. Right. So what's the differentiator between what's called Qigong and what is just somebody waving their hands around. And mm. I think what it is, is involves three components. One is it does involve physical exercise. Some kinds or forms of Qigong are very physically intense, including very physically demanding breath work that literally makes you profusely sweat. Other kinds are not that physically intense, but in general, they involve some kind of physical exercise. So we could put that into like the cardiovascular exercise bucket. The second is they involve specific breathing exercises. So Qigong exercises range from just lengthen and slow the breath down, right? Lengthen the breathing a little longer, lengthen the exhale, all the way to crazy intense forms of what's called reverse breathing or even controlled breathing where you, you know, you actually inhale, clench the abdomen, swallow and generate pressure in the low abdomen. And there's something called, I think it's called iron shirt qigong and it's used as like a martial arts form. And then the third part is they often involve visualization. So these three components are often the three aspects of Qigong that you see throughout, you know, traditional East Asian history. And I would say, what is it good for? So it's primarily good for basically anything, in my opinion, that exercise will respond well to is one way, right? From the most material and uh, scientific point of view, because what Qigong does is, you know, breathing, changing your breathing has a clear effect on changing the nervous system, right? Like the heart rate, um, aspects of just your overall circulation. So someone who has poor circulation or who runs cold, if they do breathing exercises like Qigong every day, they'll actually have better circulation and blood flow. So I think at its most material level, anything that responds well to like cardiovascular exercise and anything that responds well to changes in respiratory rate or quality of breathing, like to me, anything related to the nervous system, anxiety, depression, sleep, and other aspects of even digestion, right? Mood respond really well to uh, Qigong kinds of exercises. Mm. So 
it's kind of more of a an active meditation where you're uh, getting in tune with your body. Um, what is the significance of Qigong specifically for Chinese medicine? Because I've heard that uh, it's a really key aspect of learning about Chinese medicine. And some people even believe that uh, it changes how your qi flows and therefore has an influence on how uh, when you're working with uh, patients and their health. What's been your experience with that? Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And this is one of those things that changes from practitioner to practitioner, experiences mm -hmm. they have had, doctors they've worked with. But in general, you know, Chinese medicine is predicated on this idea of qi. And I really hesitate to translate that as energy because I don't think that ancient people necessarily thought that it was energy, right? It's a cultural concept that is very difficult to translate. But if you think of qi as almost like the most subatomic version or the most immaterial version of physiology, right? I, I like to give an example of at some point when someone has cancer and there's a giant tumor forming, there is some point throughout that person's life, whether it's a year ago, five years ago, 20 years ago, where nothing was measurable before eventually leading to a tumor. So what was that? What is that little tiny seed of the physiological dysfunction or pathological dysfunction that ultimately leads to a physical object forming, right? TCM is concerned with a lot with what is functional, right? What is immaterial? What is what is the relationship between things as opposed to, you know, why is there a tumor there? Can we, can't we just cut it out or can't we just give the person chemo? Mm -hmm. But why did that develop in the first place, right? You take two people with the same risk factors. They don't both get cancer or even at the same rate or the same severity or the same kind of cancer. So a lot of what um, the value is of Qigong and, and related to Chinese medicine is a lot of what we're doing in Chinese medicine is ancient doctors viewed as dysfunctions and qi circulation in the body predispose people to illness. And where that flow is blocked is the determinant of where they develop disease, right? Combined with like the, the traditional medical factors of like nature and nurture, genetics and individual animal temperament or constitution, as we call it, combined with the person's environment, combined with their personal decisions. So what does this have to do with doing Qigong for yourself? I've heard a great practitioner describe it as if you're trying to understand what is, where is the kink? Like, where's the kink in the system? What's the Achilles heel? What's the, what is the broken link in this chain? And trying to correct that with acupuncture or with herbal medicine or with Qigong or with lifestyle, but you yourself can't even understand that in your own body. It's mm -hmm. very difficult to apply that to a patient's life. So, you know, you're sitting there, you're doing whatever kind of Qigong form, whether it's the standing practices or, you know, these kind of yin yang palms, or even just, you're just seated and doing breathing kinds of qigong, what that develops is a very specific kind of subtle body awareness, the way I like to think of it. So just like in the same way that maybe I start doing qigong, I sit down and I notice, you know, wow, I'm, I actually carry a lot of my breathing in the upper part of my chest and it's not much belly breathing. And I can recognize that's because I'm working too much. I'm not slowing down. I'm not breathing. Or I'm noticing a little bit of kind of indigestion, right? In the upper GI. And then I realize wow, I've actually had that for like a few weeks and same thing. So I think Qigong helps develop that subtle body awareness. Almost like, have you ever seen someone like you personally in your clinical practice, who's a highly intelligent person, very well-educated, but they are so disconnected from their body that they can't even tell how sick they are, yeah. right? Like for, for I've, I've been that patient, right? Like I'm just saying that I've been that person 
And there are a lot of people who are very intelligent, highly educated, but are very disconnected from those subtle changes in the body. And mm-hmm. that is what Qigong can help you suss out, the little canaries in the coal mine before they become big things. Mm. And oftentimes the people who do have a, a tendency towards being more uh, nervous system dominant or in Ayurveda, they're called like the Vata type. They tend to have a more issues with kind of getting stuck in their head and their thoughts and not being aware of their body. So it's kind of a a gift and a curse with intelligence comes greater, uh, you know, awareness of all the places where the the mind lacks. Sure. Or even like you said, some people exist just from the neck up, right? So because (laughs) their whole life, literally, I mean, like if you think about intellectual or academic life, right? Like we've both spent time doing you know, four-year doctoral level medical training, and it's, you're only developing the intellect, right? You're not developing the physical body. You're not developing the emotional body. You're not developing the spiritual body, the, even the intuitive body, if I can use that, like the instinctive, like, yes, my training says this and that with this patient, but my gut feeling is that this is what they need. We don't typically learn that Mm -hmm. even in like our integrative training, right? I mean, it's more focused on the the technical skills. Mm. What are some of the interesting experiences you've personally had with Qigong? Like, have you had any um, kind of profound insights from your practice? Yeah, I think for me, one of the the insights I've had is that sometimes just standing and doing a a basic Qigong form, you start to become aware of one thing that I I just found it interesting. It's not life shattering, but uh, or earth shattering, but I found that one time I was just sitting doing this standing practice, which is a common qigong form in lots of different lineages of Chinese medicine and all over East Asia. Um, even in martial arts, they have that. And one time I was just standing there, and I was noticing that I was experiencing uh, an ache in my elbow, the lateral side outside of my left elbow, and also the same side of my left knee. And what I realized was that these were decades-long injuries that I had that I really wasn't aware of until very recently. And it was making me think of this idea of the, you know, in Chinese medicine, they say like the chi and the blood are intimately linked, right? You have like the, almost like the immaterial leads the material. Mm -hmm. And so I was making me think, well, as I'm doing these breathing exercises, as my hands were getting warm, as my feet were getting warm, as my circulation was increasing, I was actually becoming aware of old injuries. And I thought that was fascinating because day to day, I wasn't aware of them. And I was just sitting there, right? It's not like I was doing, you know, barbell deadlifts or, or barbell squats or deadlifts or something. I wasn't mm-hmm. lifting heavy weight, but that the actual circulation and these exercises I was doing, you know, these padding exercises was actually almost like generating sensation as if it was trying to move through and, and find its way into healing some of these old injuries. So to me, that was a perfect indicator of how Qigong was helping me with developing that subtle body awareness, right? These decades long injuries that I wasn't experiencing day to day, but suddenly were coming up. And that was giving me sort of um, a subtle insight in that way. Mm. Yeah, I really like um, doing uh, muscle relaxation type uh, meditations where you uh, become aware of your body and you you breathe in and out and you individually release tension in your muscles like around your eyes, neck, shoulders, back, and you go through the process. and within, uh, you know, just a couple of minutes, you notice like the sense of peace and relaxation. And you kind of, you start to become aware of like where you're holding all this tension, like in your shoulders around your eyes and things like that. 
it's incredibly interesting that we walk around with this kind of baseline level of like um of tension that's stored in like our tension. Uh, in our muscles um yeah and only when we take a moment to kind of breathe do some kind of mindfulness practice qigong for example do we notice all that we're holding what i find interesting For too sure. is how quickly the mind calms down and relaxes when you bring attention back to the body why do you think that is well i think if you want me to give a interesting example i don't think there's a mind and a body in terms mm-hmm. of the nervous system right i think there is one thing right which is why i can think about a stressful life experience i've had you know like for example i can think back to I got a an internship in my early 20s uh, doing marine biology research in Fiji. And part of that was I actually got scuba certified for the first time ever. And I went on a shark dive where they have like tiger sharks and bull sharks. They actually feed them. They, they bring you down 80 feet. My very first dive ever in the ocean was a tiger, was a, was a shark dive. Oh, wow. And I did this specifically because I don't like the ocean, right? I grew up on the ocean. I don't like the ocean. I don't have a phobia where I won't jump into the water, but I would prefer not to be in the ocean. You have a reasonable actually, concern about it. I have reasonable evidence. Now, the irony was I did this for desensitization therapy and I actually ran out of oxygen on my first scuba dive at wow. 60 feet underwater on a shark dive. It was just a, an equipment error, but uh, that was the feeling that it was, I'm for sure going to die, right? And I can think back to that and my heart rate gets elevated. My palms get clammy. I notice my breathing change and I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm not telling myself, oh, that was such a scary experience. I just see the pictures and my physical body responds. So I think it's, it's, it's mind dash body, right? It's the body is a unit. It's only our sort of, you know, this Cartesian linear, um, what do you call it? Like anatomy based on gro- gross anatomy that's designed for surgeons, not for people who practice like a functional form of medicine. Mm-hmm. It's based so, on a I mechanistic think, view of the universe that the body's exactly. a machine and then there's some kind of program running in it, which is uh, the mind. Right, exactly. The brain. And and so I think it's mind dash body or mind body with no dash at all. So that's how I think about it, right? So that's why breathing can or physical, ex- physical exercise can change your mental state. And this research side by side showing that at least in one particular study, side by side with antidepressants, it had the same efficacy for relieving symptoms of, uh, I think it was for depression. So that's the, you know, the approaching the body to fix the mind and vice versa. I agree. Yeah. The mind body is also just an intellectual concept and right. getting into those kind of Eastern philosophies. There's this idea that uh, reality itself is unknowable. And we just try to put you know, intellectual concepts on it, but we only really experience the body through our mind, whatever the mind is. So wholeheartedly agree that might be at the root of the issue is that we think that we have a mind and a body. Um, Sure. When really we, we just have an, our experience and we can kind of shift our attention either to like the recurring thoughts, thought streams in our minds or to our, our bodies or to something else. Um, sure. And it's like, you know, what's the result? The result is that when you look at, for example, how people today view mental health, they view it as a cognitive thing, right? A lot of the time they view it as, oh, my, I need to work on my mental health. So I'm going to go to a talk therapy appointment every mm-hmm. week. Not, not saying that can't help people. So they view it again as a mind thing, as opposed to a mind body thing, right? As opposed to a whole organism thing, right? So for some people, 
just physically exercising and doing nothing about the mind will have as much of a clinical relief of their depression symptoms as an antidepressant. Maybe they don't need anything else, right? And so I think it it's almost, um, it's like going down a false path in a way if you just view it as, oh, mental health is about just my mind. You're, you're so right about that. Uh, and, you know, when we're seeing uh, clients or patients, it's really important in finding out why is that person feeling anxious? Why are they feeling depressed? Because there is physiological right. reasons. I mean, pretty yeah. much every major chronic illness has depression and anxiety and fatigue as uh, a symptom of it. Pretty much everyone, sure. right? Because when sure. any system is out of balance, that's somehow going to you know, affect the mind and the brain. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. It's also interesting, too, in our kind of Western culture, we think of the mind as in the brain. But right there, there's some evidence that there's kind of a brain in the gut and our even our heart has its own certain uh, nervous system and rhythms. And yeah. when those are influenced, it affects the mind and vice versa. Um, like people with uh, heart failure, uh, very often they have many different uh, mental health type issues like severe depression mood changes and all of that. Um, and yeah. it's not just because of, you know, the mind aspect of realizing that you have this, uh, pretty serious illness, but when there yeah. is some kind of change in the physiology, it's going to affect the mind and the brain. So that, sure. I mean, that's a hundred percent. You bring up a really, really good point actually, because that's exactly how we often view it in this culture, right? Oh, you, you're having issues with your mental health, uh, you know, uh, talk, talk about it or, uh, you know, right. or, or even just do like meditation and things like that. And yeah, it's gonna, sure. it's gonna certainly help. But if the, the cause of it is something much deeper, like, or if, especially right. if it's physiological, yeah, that could be a real problem because in some way you're suppressing the symptom of your body kind of crying out for, uh, you to be aware of it. Right. Like, um, right. Like th a thyroid conditions are a great example of that or adrenal conditions. Yep. They can cause severe depression, severe anxiety. Yep. Um, yep. and if you don't address those things, it's not going to, uh, be resolved, but there's also the yep. mind aspect. Some people, they can train themselves through, uh, discipline. I'm thinking of like, uh, Dave, uh, Goggins here, Goggins, yeah. where like just the, the willpower and the discipline to push through and, you know, get things done or, you know, to do what you need to do. It can kind of sometimes yeah. overpower all of the body signals that you need to, you need to relax. You, you, need, you need to, to look rest, into this yeah. physiological injury. You need to. Yep. So you. Well, Goggins yeah. hasn't even, he hasn't he even given himself kidney failure from his training. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So there's like, there's, 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 it's an extreme. Or, there's, it's yeah, there's an, an extreme. extreme. Right. I, yeah. I saw a video of him recently. Someone said to me, and he, he grabbed his shin and it left an entire inch deep indent. And someone just commented, three plus pitting edema, check. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's the extreme of you're causing irreversible damage to your body from pushing, right? There is a physical limit. Right, which is, but, which is possible. And it's good to yeah. know that you can go beyond it. But the question is, I think ultimately, for health is, you know, what, what is one's uh, goal and purpose with their life? Because sure. his purpose is to just push beyond all human capacity where yep. you, 
it would be medically advisable to stop running at the, at right. the point of the marathons that he's done. Um, right. But that's his goal isn't necessarily to be free of pain. It's to see how far he can push himself. And right. surprisingly, he still shows up on interviews and he seems like he's doing all right. So there's some yeah. some proof there that you can kind of overpower some of these limitations of, of the sure. body with the mind, although not sure. always advisable. Right. But it's right. good to have the skill. It's good to be able and, to yeah. if you need to. Exactly. Hey, it's uh, sometimes it's good to go with the flow in life, but sometimes you have to swim upstream and that's just what you have to do. And it's good to exercise that muscle. Mm -hmm. So the past few years have been a very tumultuous time. Uh, the, the pandemic, all the uh, fear and isolation, all these things. What have you noticed uh, just experientially from friends or working with patients about the kind of general atmosphere of these times and, and what we can do about it. Yeah. Well, I was thinking, I had this conversation with someone recently about, you know, they were asking what are the most common illnesses you see in your practice and clinic today? And I described them as layers, right? And just like when I have patients come in, I describe them, you know, that line from uh, Shrek ogres are like onions, mm -hmm. right? There's like these layers you have to peel off. Um, and I think the first layer that I see is GI for sure. Lots of upper GI issues like acid reflux, indigestion, that kind of thing. And lots of lower GI issues like SIBO and gut dysbiosis. Uh, so on one layer, we have this level of GI distress, right? And beneath that, we have what I just generally lump into the category of nervous system issues like anxiety, depression, insomnia, right? Some kind of nervous system dysregulation is one way to, to look at these. Um, and it's interesting because the GI side is more often an issue of what I would call like stagnation, right? People overeating, too much standard American diet or not taking the proper time for meals and generating a lot of indigestion and long-term acid reflux. And I had a conversation recently with a medical professional and she said, she's primary care and she said, you know, I'm seeing more and more 10-year-olds with GERD. And I said, are these kids that are clinically obese and they're eating McDonald's? And she said, no. The biggest one is very thin kids that are not out of shape, but they're stressed high achievers. And I thought that was very telling because these are not kids who are eating a poor diet. These are kids who are, the damage is coming from the, the tension in the nervous system, right? And while you can generate that without being a high achiever, right? You can just be in a, a family with a lot of danger right? Dad's an alcoholic, this instability in the family, kids don't feel safe. And whether or not they can communicate that their nervous system is telling the story of that. Mm -hmm. And so I think on one side, you see stress manifesting in the body. It's sometimes in ways where people don't report stress, right? There's definitely sympathetic dominance and all kinds of stress hormones coursing through their body, but they're only showing up with GI issues, but it is really ultimately stress of, you know, of sympathetic dominance. And so I think that's one layer that I see. And on the other layer is primarily a lot of, you know, anxiety and insomnia and just generally not feeling grounded and calm. And that's, it's interesting. It's like the first layer is GI. The second layer is like, you know, you could call it the adrenals, you call it HPA axis, you could call it nervous system, sympathetic dominance, but it's all kind of the same thing to me. And it's just being bombarded with too much to do too much stimulation on the phone, using up the nervous system, engaging the nervous system, not enough rest, not enough time just savoring, going for walks with friends in the woods or just in your neighborhood. And I, I see these two layers as being really consistently true. 
But what's crazy is I, I listened to an interview from a motivational speaker in the 1950s. His name is Earl Nightingale. And he said that, hilarious. I mean, we're recording this in 2023. And he was in the 1950s. And he said, um, doctors and psychiatrists are calling this the age of ulcers and barbiturates, mm. right? So people it, back then already were having GI issues from the stress. They were having, um, they were already abusing me- certain kinds of medications used at that time for that were sedative in nature, right? For sleep and anxiety and just general neurasthenia, as they called it. So it's like nothing has changed in a way. And when you look at the stats, the SSRI and varying kinds, I mean, you would know better than I do, all the varying kinds of antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication have only increased exponentially since even the 1990s. So that's what I see. And surprisingly, it seems like it hasn't actually changed uh, in terms of what I see coming into the clinic. It's certainly gotten much worse. I remember during, uh, I was looking into research studies during the pandemic and uh, the rates of like moderate to severe depression went up 3x, 5x in just a year and also anxiety and all those things. So there's an interesting point to be made here about what could be part of the causes. Sure, sure. And I think I even, you know, go ahead. Yeah. So I I wanted to mention the fact that the kind of uh, stimulus that we get from the media and all around us and what other people are focused on, whereas more in the past, you didn't really know what was necessarily going on uh, across the world unless uh, it was like very, very big news. Uh, You just kind of knew what was going on in your local area. But now with uh, social media obviously the the news and there's a such a focus on the negative things right because it it generates more income for advertisers because that kind of amygdala gets the activated you can't look away from when somebody you know says war terror death like those things get attention yeah. and i just wonder how that influences people to be constantly inundated with this source of negative information um and almost like training your subconscious to be like afraid of what's going on around you at all times, like uh, priming yourself for fight or flight. Um, And I think the pandemic is a perfect example of this because, you know, people were inside and isolated and where were they connecting through electronics and people were more on social media. I mean, those companies did excellently during the pandemic. Yeah. They have have the payday of the century, right? Exactly. the companies producing, you know, the treatments for it, but they had the payday of the century, the news. So they weren't, I don't know if there were regulations in terms of the government, in terms of what news stations could share or not, but certainly they shared every little stat about how scary the coming wave was of the pandemic. And, um, and I think what is the opposite of what news may be for some people ordinarily we were all anxiously awaiting it because we didn't know what was coming, right? It's like you're waiting for a war on your home turf and you don't know where the enemy is or when it's coming or what it looks like or what it's armed with. So even people, ordinary people who wouldn't necessarily consume the news like me, I was consuming it daily to be educated and informed. And so even worse, because you couldn't look away because it, it was coming. You just didn't know when, you know? So that made right, it I had that experience as well. Avoid. Yeah, when you work in yeah. the health space, it's kind of important to know about. But then it got to a certain yeah. point where it wasn't 
for me, it wasn't even useful anymore to study right. into it. Um, right. But yeah, that that brings up the point of in terms of health and mental health is what kind of information and influences are you bringing into yourself? Like, who are the people you're spending time with? Who are the people you're talking to? Uh, what kinds of movies are you watching? What kinds of music are you listening to? Uh, yep. What kinds of news you're taking in? All of that obviously affects people's days very significantly. I mean, if sure. if that's not addressed, it's really hard to to bring about peace of mind. I mean, sure. I'm, I'm a lifelong meditator, pretty relaxed, chill person. Um, but if I sit and watch like Fox News for like 10 minutes, it, you know, it definitely changes my mood. It makes me more agitated. Usually I just get angry that I'm even watching it or that they're even right. like sharing this information with people. Sure, um, sure. So that that's important. You know, what you put into your mind, uh, I think that's also why, you know, reading and uh, having interests can be very, very useful for, for mental health so that you don't get caught up in every, uh, you know, hysteria, any mass uh, uh, thinking of people so that you can sure. have peace of mind when times are kind of tumultuous. Yeah, and that's why there's that, what is it, the biopsychosocial model of uh, anxiety, depression, right? Like there are psychological factors and social factors. And some of the psychological factors may be your choice of how you spend time, right? And what you're choosing to consume. I mean, think about, I feel so bad for little kids these days that are born into a generation full of social media, where little girls that are 12 years old becoming teenagers are seeing these girls with millions of followers, but they don't know that everything about that video is a filter. I mean, I saw this little video of a, a girl and it showed her with filter, without filter. Without filter, she looked like a normal, you know, she, she, I don't know, maybe she was like 16 or something. She's just like a, a cute little kid, right? With a filter, she looked like a, like a Disney, Disney uh, character, like a cartoon character, right? It adds all these little cute freckles. Her eyes are bigger. It looks like she has instant makeup. And I'm like, this is the majority of her videos on her TikTok. And some millions of little girls are watching this girl thinking that that's real and comparing themselves to that and that is deeply troubling to me and that's mm -hmm. that's a choice right obviously these companies make the platforms addicting on purpose but that's that's a choice to use that and that's going to affect their their mental health absolutely yeah absolutely and if you're in that younger age group, it's probably much harder to disconnect from social media because that's sure. all you know from an early, from an early age. And of course, yeah. there's always that bias towards positivity on social media, which gives you a right. false perception of reality and can make you feel kind of bad if you see somebody uh, and they have all these like amazing posts and they're doing all these like victorious things. And they're just, it just looks like their life is incredibly epic and perfect and everything yeah. you could ever want. Um, but you don't see like the dark parts of their life, their, their struggles. I, maybe they struggle with depression. Maybe they struggle with addictions. You, you don't see any of that because people don't really show that. Uh, so it gives you a kind of skewed perception of reality and it gives sure. a kind of false um, ruler to measure yourself up with because yeah. it's only measuring up against what, people want to show you of of themselves right it's like a which horizon, isn't the whole right? truth 
Yeah. It's like you're you're comparing yourself versus this horizon that is something you're trying to keep aspiring towards, but you can never actually reach. And so you always feel like there's something wrong with you, that you're not actually good enough, or you maybe you don't have what it takes. And then once that happens enough times, then your self-esteem is affected because you think, well, the most dangerous belief to me is that there's something wrong with me, or they have something special, right? Because mm. people view that as an intrinsic quality, right? Like you say, you hear people say like, uh, intelligent people, successful people, creative people, athletic people. And there's no doubt that genetics play a role in, in all of these things, maybe. But people, when we believe that that person is there because they are genetically different, they're just special and I'm not, that is the most damaging fixed mindset a person can have because it's a kind of learned helplessness. Like they just don't try after that point because they think, well, they have some genetic gift that I do not have. And so why bother trying? Mm. Where do you think that uh, that belief comes from that uh, somebody has something like special when you see somebody who's incredibly successful? Yeah. What, what do you think that is? I think there's a lot of ways to unpack that. And I think it's one part nature, one part nurture. I do think people's animal natures, our genetics, um, do have one, one. When I talk to people who are parents, they say, you think your kids are a tabula rasa, a blank, blank slate. But even their personality is not a blank slate. They come out and they have their own little personalities. They have their own little interests. And sometimes you can't logically track why that is. They have their own natural natural inclinations. Sometimes the kid in a family of doctors is like a musician and it doesn't add up and they're not rebelling. They actually really love music. So I think people do have a genetic tendency towards certain qualities, creativity, maybe traditional forms of intelligence. Um, maybe some are a little more gritty and some are a little more ADD for lack of a better word, but each of those are gifts, you know? And so I think about these little kids, you know, let's say you have two kids in a family. This is often where it starts. One kid is the, and like the school system rewards kids who are able to sit in their seat and do their homework, but you're rewarding a very specific kind of quality that you're not rewarding in someone else. So you have two kids. One is the traditional they can sit down, they can do their homework. They get fine grades, right? They're good at taking orders. They're going to be a great employee one day, but they're not a free thinker and they're not a creative, right? They're not a creative soul. They're great at being a cog in the machine. And so they succeed in a system that's designed to produce cogs in the machine. You take, let's say this little boy's sister and the girl is super creative. From a traditional perspective, maybe ADHD. She can't sit in a seat all day for eight hours. She likes painting and she likes drawing. and She's very, very creative. She comes up with all these lateral lines of thinking to solve the same problem. But because the school only rewards the kids that can paint inside the lines, she doesn't do well in school. And she therefore finds it to be something painful. So what happens is little boy goes home, gets praised by mom and dad because he did what the system wanted him to do and be who he, they wanted him to be. The little girl is constantly getting into fights with her mom because mom says, hey, you're not doing your homework. You're not doing it right. Just get it done on time. Then the teacher has the student parent conference and says, hey, you know, your daughter, she's a sweetheart, but she just cannot sit still. And then they talk about getting her on medication. This is like an archetypal example lots of parents have, have gone through. But our society only rewards the kids that can be cogs in the system, right? Those people can be successful, functional people, but they generally are not the creative souls, the adventurers, the entrepreneurs who changed the game, right? Who changed the way society's been for thousands of years or just decades. 
they're people who are great at continuing the way things have always been. And that's great too. But this other kid has equal gifts. The creativity is the gift, right? Not being able to paint in the lines is a gift. It comes with other kinds of gifts. And put them in the right room. Now they're the genius, right? And so I think it starts from childhood where kids have natural inclinations, but then they get into the school system, which only rewards one kind of child. Let's be real, right? It rewards the kid who can sit down and be disciplined and do their work, not make noise. It doesn't reward the kid that's creative or thinks differently. And so those kids often have their self-esteem deeply damaged and then their self-image, if they're not careful, if they don't have great, great, great parents um, that protect that gift, they become deeply damaged and their self-perception by the time they're a teenager is, is often very poor. So I think this is where it begins. And I think that's how it becomes like a, a, a negative feedback, or let's just say it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's an incredibly uh, important point, I think, uh, to make. Uh, that we each have our own you know, strengths and weaknesses. But of course, the educational system really selects for a certain kind of thing. And yep. the people who do have more of um, a tendency towards being like creative, open-minded, et cetera. They're only rewarded usually in the very small percentage, right? People who can actually become successful using their creative talents and their right. temperament and things like that. But the whole way there, it's probably just a struggle because it's not within the conventional system of, you know, w- what you should do. So they're, naturally always going to have a lot of resistance and pushback. Well, like you're doing this. Well, why don't you do it like this? Like everyone else does it. Um, Right. There's an argument on both sides, but for somebody who's more creatively inclined, it's basically a a path of misery to just go with what everyone else does. Cause that's what creativity is. It's doing something new, innovative. Right. And that stuff even starts in the home too, right? Look at how many parents are like, Oh, see Kelly why can't you be like your brother, Mark, right? Mm. And so you're, again, training the child to think there's something wrong with not being able to, like if you can't sit in your chair and just do your homework and be the way everyone else is, there's something wrong with you, right? And kids don't have that confidence that adults do to think, you know what? I'm just different and I'm going to go find what my genius is and I'm going to find where that's get, that gets rewarded and I'm going to do that. So it's hard. Mm. In one of your uh, videos, you mentioned this idea of the personal legend. So what what is the personal legend and how do you find it? Yeah, I think the term personal legend comes from Paulo Coelho's book, The Alchemist. And the reason why I resonate so much with this is that I feel like me being in this profession versus being a traditional MD is a twist of fate or dharma, right? And you know, Paulo Coelho talks a lot about in that book, The Alchemist, about sort of, you know, following your heart, kind of a cheesy term, but that idea of following that divine path that lights you up and makes you feel excited and feels like this is the path that you're guided, right? You've been, you know, ancients, you, ancient people use this word calling or vocation, right? Which I think, I think someone correct me, the root of that is to be called, right? Which is why it was traditionally used, I think, for medicine the clergy and the military. I think those were three of the traditional vocations mm-hmm. that you felt called to do soldier, uh, holy person or physician. And for me, the personal legend is something that gives your life the through line of direction. So while 
I think a lot of people look for meaning and direction in varying ways, right? Some people just look great in love, right? Their job that sucks, they hate it, but you know, they're with a the love of their life or they're with their current boyfriend or girlfriend and they spend all their time with them. That's where they get their, this is my, this is my place to be. But I think vocation is like Dharma, right? Which I think comes from the Bhagavad Gita, the Indian classic. And it's sort of like this, it's not just your work in the world, but it's like your purpose in the world. And the reason it relates to me or it resonates is just because I feel like that is true with my work of becoming a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture is very unconventional, right? I didn't know anyone in this profession. I didn't, there was no guarantee of being able to pay my rent. There was no guarantee it was something I would be happy and fulfilled in or could change lives. But I felt that immaterial, invisible draw to it. And I think for a lot of people today, if you can try to have your life be led by Dharma or personal legend and to find something as close to that as possible that gives you that excitement and passion, it can on its own be a source of healing, which is interesting, but it gives you a source of inspiration and purpose in a world where I think there are infinite, an infinite number of reasons and paths, side paths where you can be lost. Following your personal legend is sort of like knowing your North Star. And if you always know where the North Star is in the sky, you can always make sure you're on course. But if you have no North Star, if you don't look at the North Star, then you're just wandering around the desert at night and there's nowhere to go. You don't know where you'll end up. So mm -hmm. to me, that's the importance of it and why I think people should should try to seek that out. Mm. It's an excellent book, too. If anybody hasn't uh, read it, one of my favorites. Um, Paulo Coelho is an interesting uh, guy as well. One thing I found kind of inspirational from him uh, is he talked about his process of uh, of writing. And he said, <laughs> he said for the first few hours of every day, he wouldn't get any writing done. And he would just like hate himself and beat himself up about it. And then finally, you know, it'd be like late afternoon, early evening, he would finally sit down and start writing. Um, after going through this like intense self-hatred for the fact that he couldn't start writing. And what was kind of inspiring about that is he said, the way I figured it out is that that's just my process. Like I need to go through that time and then eventually I'll get there and I'll, I'll get it done. Um, I found the story incredibly interesting because his writing is really good and he's very profound and it brings that like that human element into it because whenever you hear the story of like really a great person, I think it's, it's super interesting and useful to know where, where are they struggling? Where are their faults? Where's their darkness? Because then it shows right. you that they're just like you. They're just actively trying to grow and be better and things like that. But they're not, you know, immune to sadness. They're not immune to pain. They're the yeah. same um, in, in that respect. And I think that's actually a really inspiring message. Whereas when you have, you know, your celebrities and heroes on a, on a pedestal where they have absolutely no faults, it's a completely unrealistic expectation because no one's achieved it unless, right you know, enlightenment is, is possible. Perhaps you can say that certain enlightened individuals have, but um, sure. even they are said to have faults, interestingly, in a lot of the yeah. traditional stories. So, And I think a lot of them, what's relatable is there was suffering on the way to their dharma, right? I mean, take Paulo Coelho, perfect example. The guy was committed to a mental institution three times by his parents because he was an artist, right? Uh, I think he actually escaped all three times. Uh, the alchemist, 
The Alchemist, one of the best-selling books ever in human legend. history. Yeah, that is a personal legend, right? I'm sure he's a legend amongst his friends. But The Alchemist, one of the best-selling books in human history, I think he said he sold one copy in the first six months. And then another copy, like six months later, and it was the same person who bought the first book. And it wasn't an overnight bestseller, right? It was a slow burn. And then I don't know how long it took to take off and become the worldwide phenomenon. But Paulo Coelho must have hundreds of millions of dollars at this point from writing books, no less. He's not a tech bro, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that it wasn't all easy from the start. It didn't wasn't just his first book and it just sold a hundred million dollar, a hundred million copies, and it was effortless. It, it wasn't that. It was actually a slow process of building up. And I think mm -hmm. that's also really important for people to keep in mind. Um, so that's that's also Dharma, right? Difficulties are part of Dharma, they're part of your mm -hmm. life path. So that brings up a question here. How how do you know if you're on your personal legend story? How do you know if you're fulfilling you know, your, your destiny, so to speak, because there's going to be struggle in that as well. Yep. So how do you differentiate from like the mind numbing type of struggle where you're in the wrong sure. place doing the wrong thing, or you're just struggling because you're, you know, on a new frontier and you're actually living your legend. How, how, how do you tell the difference between that? To me, the singular way, you know, you're aligned with like Dharma or your purpose or whatever, is that regardless of the difficulties, you feel a sense of peace that it's the right path and you feel a sense of excitement. So no matter how big the trials or tribulations, you may take a week off and say, maybe this isn't for me. But then if you're a writer, you're going to start writing anyway because you love it. And if you're a painter, you're going to start painting because you love painting anyway. And if you love medicine, even if you had the worst week of your life, you couldn't fix a patient's condition, something terrible happens, whatever it is, you're still going to go back and sit in your little library and open that medical book because if it's love, you'll do it anyway. You'll do it no matter what. If you're paid, if you're not paid, if it's the best day of your life, it's the worst day. So to me, excitement and increased energy and that inner sensation is the way you know you're aligned with the right path, with mm -hmm. like the hero's journey, as uh, Campbell says, mm -hmm. because you can't guarantee how easy or hard the path will be. You don't know until you're on the path. but if you feel that excitement for it, that natural inclination, you're going to want to do it anyway. Mm. So it's something that you're constantly drawn uh, back to. I uh, I like to think of it as like when you're like at your work or if you're at school or something like that, it's what's the thing that you keep like reading about, like instead of doing the thing that you're quote unquote supposed to be doing, what's the thing yeah. that you can't bring yourself away from? Um, That's a great one. So, yeah, that's it's a good aspect of, you know, the mind or you could call it the spirit that it always tries to bring us back along the right path. Um, the thing is, we it could be resisted. It could be resisted externally if you take in sure. other people's opinions as as the truth. Yep. It could be resisted internally where it's like, well, I'm uncertain of what's going to happen because, you know, my this looks like a quite a thicket I have to walk through, even though I know it's the, yep. it's the right way. Um, sure. So it could be very difficult. I yeah. think that is one of the fundamental drives toward life is uh, finding a sense of fulfillment and, and meaning in, in one's own life. That's their own. That's not sure. handed to them. That's not told to them. It's their own. 
And look, even my own refusal by Joseph Campbell calls it the refusal of the call in the mm -hmm. hero's journey, right? I mean, when I was 18, I went to interview at all of the naturopathic medical schools in the US. So I knew even as a teenager, this is what I was going to do. And I even tried emailing colleges and universities to see if I could skip my four-year undergrad just to go to naturopathic medical school mm -hmm. at, at 18. They said no. So unfortunately, I had to spend four years doing you know, a bio and pre-med undergrad at Clemson, even though I didn't want to go to college. And I didn't go back to do this doctorate in traditional Chinese medicine until I was 29. So why did 11 years elapse? That I, 11 years is like the average time, like 10 years is like what it takes for someone to accumulate 10,000 hours. I could have been like a world expert by 30 instead of just starting at basically 30. Mm. So why was that? Why, why was yeah, that? Because someone told that? me, you're never going to make any money in that profession. And uh, you should just become a, re a real doctor and MD, right? You should just become an MD. So you're going to make a lot of money and be respected. And then just study this little alternative integrative medicine thing on the side. And it wasn't why, for 10 years. Why do you think you listened? Why do you think you listened to that at that age? I don't think I had the self-confidence. I think it affected me like the way adults affect children who don't, who don't believe in themselves yet. So I think what happened was over 10 years, I had enough experience to learn that if I go into this profession, I'm self-employed, right? It, there aren't thousands of jobs. So do I have enough confidence as a self-employed person that I can be the best at my craft of this kind of medicine and I can scrap together whatever it takes to not go out of business? It took me until I was 29 to have that confidence on the path of my dharma. And that's that's a perfect example of the refusal of the call because someone talked me out of it. Family members, my grandpa, other people who are very pragmatic people. And I'm, and I'm grateful, but it clearly was an internal process, right? It had nothing to do with them. Their words were just prompted me to think about questions I couldn't answer. And that uncertainty mm -hmm. made me fail to follow through on the path that mm -hmm. I knew was what I wanted. Right. And those, those kind of ideas are, uh, you know, ingrained in the culture. They're very deep, right. even subconscious. One could say even even if no one had told you, it might have yep. still been a block. But yep. when somebody you trust tells you, hey, listen, like this is what you got to do. And sometimes right. they have reasonable points. The question sure. is, I guess, and I, I like what you said there, like, do I have the confidence to kind of make it work? Like, given the yeah. fact that this might be a more difficult path, can I still make it worth anyway? And would that be worthwhile? So I think right. that's important is to ask the question, not to, um, not to pretend that it's not a fact of life, but to see if you can find a solution to it. And if that's worth it, I think if you're following your, your call and your, your fate, and you always find some way to scrap it together. And sometimes it's miraculous. Um, yeah. like it makes me think of, uh, Elon Musk with, uh, with Tesla, uh, how it was completely on the verge of like bankruptcy uh, several times. But one time it was so bad where it was like in like a day or two, it might completely go under. And then some, you know, gift from the heavens came or from like um, in SpaceX when they got uh, a partnership with uh, NASA, right? When after the, the third uh, rocket launch failed, so they burned millions of dollars. These rockets were destroyed. But somehow in the nick of time, it came together. And that's kind of the story in um, in the hero's uh, journey is that there's some kind of uh, aid. They call, I think in the, the chapter is called like supernatural aid or something like that. Yeah. yeah when yeah. you're on the right path, somehow like, you know, you have days where you're like, there's no way that this could possibly work. 
And then right. like some unexpected source of help comes. So I think yeah. that's too like the the omens and the signposts that you're on the right, you're on the right path, uh, even when it's sure. difficult. There's an interview with Joseph Campbell where he says, um, you know, he's like, I have, I don't, I can't say whether or not this is scientifically true or not, but I have this kind of superstition where I feel like once you are on your hero's journey, there's sort of like this track that was there designed for you all along. And now that you're on this track, you're always, there's a sense of being helped by hidden hidden helpers, right? Mm -hmm. Or the do doors that were closed are now open to you. And this sort of things work out in ways that you wouldn't think they would. And I, I definitely believe that to be true. And I think that's uh, something to keep in mind too. Mm. An interesting point to add in there too is things could be working out, but the nature of the minds, you can have a certain perception or interpretation of your situation that it's not working out. Because sure. that you know, that day by day process, you don't really see like usually growth on like a daily basis. You only really see it in right. hindsight where you see how far you came, but day by day, it's very, it's very slow type of uh, progress. So I think that's right. a really important thing to, to be, um, to be aware of that. It, it takes sure. a lot of patience to be on the path as well. Yep. Yep. So there's a, a quote you shared on your uh, Instagram that I really like from Carl Jung. What you refuse to face in your life will appear in your outer life as fate. What does that mean to you? I think, I think about this a lot in terms of psychology, because um, whenever people come in, you know, there's a quote that there are no incurable diseases, only incurable people. Mm. And I don't know what physician that's attributed to, but, that might be a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And I think about it a lot because when you think about, let's just say, something mundane that's very common, acid reflux, the majority of the time, there's a certain kind of lifestyle of stress or a diet associated with that. Now, with the formulas that we utilize in my clinic, my practice, we have an extremely high success rate of reversing this functionally, right? Where they don't need any more, they don't need any of the medications that they were formerly on. But that can come back right? If they go back to the same high stress executive lifestyle, or they're going out and they're getting those big meals late at night for business dinners and a couple of glasses of wine or two cocktails. And so how do you help a person change, right? Change behaviorally, which is the hardest thing to get people to change, which is why a kind of pharmaceutical pill-based medicine will always be the most popular, which is why supplements will always be the most popular because it is far easier to take that little pill and to change nothing about your life than it is to really provoke a lot of upheaval in your life and change the way that you live. Because that may mean quitting your job, changing your job. It may mean leaving a city to move to somewhere more peaceful, which is good for your nervous system. So I think, you know, for a lot of us, what we refuse to face in our life, like let's say we're afraid of our weight and so we just don't step on the scale, right? Or we refuse to look at our student debt or money in our bank account because we know that's a sore spot. So we just don't check it. Uh, eventually what happens is we get to the point where, wow, now I have signs and symptoms of diabetes. And where did that come from? I don't know where that came from. I think I eat okay. I, I think I exercise. I, I don't think I'm that unhealthy, but that's what the labs show. And that's what the symptoms show. And what was occurring behind the scenes for months, if not probably years, was that there's a certain pattern of living and eating, right? And that was the thing that we refused to face. Like we just say, oh, you know, uh, I just... Yeah, I'm going to get around to it. And then 
three years later, now suddenly we have these signs and symptoms. Or, you know, I have this pattern of dating. And in this pattern, I'm always attracted to the same person. And that would be fine if it always worked out. But let's just say for the sake of argument, it doesn't work out. And I keep finding myself attracted to the same kind of person. Why is it that I keep getting attracted to the same kind of person and it's not a healthy relationship, right? That's something I'm now looking at closely under a microscope and is showing up in my life almost as if it's my fate because that just seems to be what I'm attracted to. I mean, people with a certain kind of programming from their childhood or from their primary caregivers can be in a room full of healthy people. And there's two unhealthy people in the whole damn room. And they will find themselves magically attracted to that same kind of person. So there's something unresolved there or something that's not been analyzed that is predisposing them to the same kind of patterns. Mm -hmm. And I think to me, this is what that kind of kind of saying means that what we refuse to face internally shows up externally in our life as fate. Because mm, we get, uh, you know, drawn subconsciously to it. Right. I, I think too, part of that, you know, uh, integration process or the healing of the the psyche it does bring you into dealing with those kind of things because that's in some sense that's the only way to overcome it right for like um, right different kinds of phobias the kind of gold standard treatment is exposure therapy right where that's you telling, basically right? that's the only the only way to get over phobia is to expose yourself to it now that of course there's like a methodical approach where it's incremental you don't want like to cause like a panic a attack because that just makes it worse um right but i think there's there's something very very telling in that um and yeah in the traditional myths it's like the hero who goes out and slays the dragon you know the most like terrifying thing the thing one most wants to avoid usually about oneself like the internal parts of ourself our, our right. shadow side um that's a battle of life and death all the time with, within yeah. ourselves. It's like that saying about, I don't know if this is a real historical anecdote, but I've read about it. The, have you heard the story about Alexander the Great encountering these yogis meditating? Mm -hmm. Right? Do you, do you remember the story? You remember was it, it the with, one like, with uh, Diogenes or um, or was it specifically with I don't yogis? Know. I think it was with yogis, but basically, you know, he's like approaching these yogis sitting and meditating. And he's like, who are you guys to stop me? Like I've conquered all these lands and I'm going to conquer your lands. And they're like, well, actually we've conquered the need within to feel like we have to conquer all of these lands. <laughs> and <laughs> he probably just laughed and killed them anyway, but <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a very yogic response, right? The need for mastery over self-desire. Right. Mm. And uh, to me, it's like one of those kinds of things. Mm. Mm. So another thing I wanted to ask you about, you talk a lot about, uh, you know, beliefs and self-limiting beliefs. What are some examples of common self-limiting beliefs you uh, hear from patients, clients, friends, et cetera? So I would say in the medical realm, certain limiting beliefs I see, frankly, are that this medication is the only way to treat what I have. Mm. And that's a dangerous limiting belief because while it is plausible, there's a highly educated white coat physician giving them some kind of medical advice. You know, they've spent years in school, you know, they're intelligent, you know, they're driven, 
why would I not trust them, right? They can say, oh, look at all this, $100 million in R&D for this medication. So they take the physician as the word of God. And the reason that's dangerous for that one is the obvious. They stop searching, right? They stop searching for healing. Let's say they don't even come to see me. They just stop trying to improve or figure out what were these circumstantial factors that led to the development of disease in the first place, right? Let's say the particular physician you go to says, this cancer was just bad luck, right? Like, doc, what do you mean? I'm a, I'm a stage four lung cancer. I'm a lifelong triathlete. I've never smoked a cigarette a day in my life. Oh, he's like, ah, it's just bad luck. It's just, yeah. It had no correlation to anything you did in your life. Now, whether or not that's factually scientifically true is, is debatable, but the fact that that person may believe that now closes the case. So they don't decide to look and see if, there's something about their diet, something they're exposed to, some fact that they were overtraining and working 80 hours a week as a CEO their whole life. And I think that is a dangerous one. Mm. I'd say another one is a lot of beliefs around self-esteem and personal capabilities. You know, this what this brings to mind is like this Carol Dweck uh, growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And I think that is the ultimate, that's like the meta limiting belief, because if you believe that literally you cannot change, you believe that something fundamentally about you is flawed. That is the most dangerous belief for a person's self-esteem self -esteem because then it's a learned helplessness. Like the rats, you know, those mm -hmm. horrible studies in psychology where they, they'll like keep zapping the rats no matter what they do. And then eventually they just stop trying to, to eat, to swim, to move. They just lay down, they just die. Um, people do that too, right? When they feel stuck and they feel like there's no way out, they just stop trying or they cave to addictions and that kind of thing. And so I think one of the most damaging limiting beliefs is the, all of the cluster of beliefs that relate to self-esteem and self-image and capability for change, because it's a very dangerous and dark day when you believe that nothing can change. And this is the way things are always going to be. And I can't fix the situation and nothing is within my control. That's a very dangerous place to be. Mm. So how do you overcome that? I think my personal opinion is find a gifted helper, right? Find, this is the perfect opportunity to find the healer, the physician, the life advisor, the good friend who's who's not just giving good advice, but is wise and self-aware themselves. In my opinion, these are the times when you look for that external help from people because they can see through that, right? The gifted, mm -hmm. trusted advisor can see through that. They may be the physician, maybe the physician may be the opposite of that. The best friend may be that. The best friend may be the opposite of that. The mother or father may be that. They may be the opposite. So I think finding your trusted advisor, someone who's wise and self-aware and can see through that is the best way to get through this. Because when you are your weakest and in your darkest moments, that is where you need that external help for. That's the point of this external help. Mm. Because when your resources are only at a 20%, and you lack that strength to pull yourself through the darkness, having someone else there that can do that for you for you is the thing that will give you the strength to not quit. Mm. And that's the fundamental role of a of a healer, you know, to be right there in those moments of transformation. Like I notice a lot with yep. clients and patients, they often first schedule a visit when they're in the midst of transformation. They're already started, yep. like the process has already begun. They've realized something's not right. And they've already started searching, looking, trying to change. And now they're seeking out someone else to 
help them along the process to keep them accountable and help guide them a little bit because it's a difficult journey and there's not really any handbooks for how to get through it. Um, Right. There is of course, lots of spiritual teachings, the Eastern philosophies, um, all the classical texts, which help you through it, but they're not individualized to a person in their, you know, cultural setting and, in their right. life and they're not specified and they could be misinterpreted right. completely. You can get completely yep. the wrong idea from those books and be like, Oh, well, nothing matters. It's fine. Like my house is sure. burning down, but I'm just going to sit here and meditate because yeah. you know, I feel okay. So, right. Like my culture says, don't get divorced. And I'm a woman who's in an extremely abusive marriage. What do I do? Right. Yeah. Which one do you so, follow? Which one do you follow? Exactly. Like to, to leave my marriage would be this catastrophe of my family. I may be excommunicated from my society, but to stay means physical abuse, emotional abuse, all the kinds of abuse, right? So I think finding those healers, and I think that's also why traditionally there's the archetype of the wounded healer and why in a lot of indigenous cultures, the shaman had to go through a near-death experience as part of the shamanic initiation. Right, shaman sickness was an essential, integral part of becoming mm-hmm. a healer, and part of that criteria was coming close to death as part of the healing and coming back with the sort of knowledge or wisdom that you could help provide to your tribe and your society. Mm-hmm. And I think a piece of that is just that you can connect to that that I hate the word vibration, but that kind of vibration of of sickness, and you know what it's like to feel that darkness closing in on you, mm-hmm. and at the very least even if that doesn't provide you any sort of clinical skill for dealing with sick people, it gives you the emotional, the psycho-emotional, the psycho-spiritual skill for connecting on that level. And that's, that's important in a healer. Mm -hmm. And that's, if anything, that's very missing from conventional medicine. That whole side of things. Yeah. Yeah. Because as someone who, let's say I'm not throwing some, shade at traditional MDs who've worked hard and are smart, but is seeing someone for five minutes and giving them a pill, is that healing? I would say no. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's certainly not. Um, the thing is, I guess it's kind of like uh, weights and balances with, with those kind of things, because like, sure. let's say somebody is so depressed that, you know, they're to the point of uh, suicidality and uh, all those things. Sometimes um, like a patient or client like that needs some help to stabilize. Like they need something yeah, yeah, yeah. to get them to some place where they could begin making the changes. And I think that's sure. the kind of wise idea of integrative medicine. It's like using using the best of conventional and the best of alternative together and knowing which one to use when. And when it's using a medication, a suppressive one, it could actually be helpful. So I think that's um, that's really important. Anything that gets you to your goal and destination of life is with minimal damage, yeah. I guess, and side effects. It could be. Uh, I completely agree. And look, maybe where the person is right now, the best healing they will get is purely symptom symptomatic management. And maybe that is the healing for right now, right? It's That's all that we're going to get for the time being. And the same way that some people who use um, varying kinds of addictions, that's what they need for the spirit or to function. That's the medicine for right now. And at another time in their life, it might be the poison. And mm-hmm. uh, so I think it's part and parcel. Yeah, that's a big, uh, big insight from 
Paracelsus, the dose makes the poison. That it's all right. about the the amount, even with herbs. I mean, you can sure. you can definitely Absolutely. overdo aconite, for example, um, and for you don't sure. want to. <laughs> um, That's right. Even ginger, right? You give someone a little 500 milligram capsule of ginger, fine. That's going to help their digestion. You give them 40 grams raw boiled ginger, they're going to break out in a profuse sweat, right? Mm. So that's not a life-threatening side effect, but that's the dose makes the poison. Mm. So I wanted to ask you also about the, the fear of failure. What is it and how to overcome and how it relates to health or making habit changes? Yeah, I think, um, you know, like we talked about, even in my own Dharma, people, I think a lot of people generally do not try if they think there's a high percentage of failure, which is very dangerous because most of the things that will improve your life have a high degree of failure, right? It could be as mundane as a guy who's going to ask out a pretty girl because he's tired of being single for five years. I'm going to ask out a girl once a week to build my courage. That's involves one of the most uncomfortable kinds of failure day to day, because most will be rejections if he's asking out strangers. And I think for people in their career, I think this is maybe more true of men than women, but I think men in particular will not risk things if they think there's a remote chance of failure. Um, I think you have guys on these one side of the spectrum, the very like uh, traditional narcissistic types, which think they're great at everything because of their childhood upbringing where their mommy always praised them no matter what. But there are the other kinds which are a little bit more grounded, which are a little more connected to the reality of, well, I tried my best and it didn't work out. But I think the problem is most people will not try if they think there's a remote chance of failure, which is the wrong way to approach life, right? The right way is it is still worth trying, even if there is a high chance of failure, because a certain percentage of the time it will still work out. So I think reevaluating for a lot of us that lots of the reasons why we don't try things are because most human beings make more decisions out of fear than out of possibility. So when you think about why does that guy ask out, not ask out that pretty girl he's interested in, right? Most probably will not have the guts. And that's because the fear of it being awkward or weird or not working out supersedes the possibility of scoring the dream girl that he marries and has a great life with. Most people will not start the business or not go to the medical program like I did besides waiting for a decade, because the fear of, well, maybe they're right. Maybe what they say is correct. Maybe what they say is true about me. Maybe what they say that I don't have what it takes is 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 the truth. And so I shouldn't try because I'm just going to be disappointed. And they are going to be laughing over there like, come on, honey, I told you it's okay. Just leave medicine behind. We can go back to the preschool teacher, right? So I think for all of us understanding that our default operating system as people is more often to make decisions out of fear versus excitement and out of possibility. But this is where all of the magic happens in life. And this is where most human beings live. And if you can move from the possibility of, let's just say your mantra becomes, I will never make decisions primarily out of fear. Again, I will make them all out of the possibility of something great can happen. My life can change. I can change. My dreams can come true if I give it enough a long enough timeline. If you live in that zone, yes, you're going to fall. Yes, you're going to fall on your face, but you'll also succeed given enough tries and enough different things. Mm. And that will give you the confidence too. That's really, that's incredibly true. Um, 
and you need that experiential knowledge as well from just trying right. and and failing and trying again and learning that you are actually very resilient to to failure right and it's actually not as bad as it's it's like the fear of it is far worse than what the actual thing is because it then it's sure. actually just a present moment situation you need to deal with but sure. if it's a fear you know? it's abstract how do you defeat a fear right you know and it's like let's say you go back to that example i was giving the first one you the guy who's been single for 5 years or the girl that's been single for 5 years you decide that you know what i'm i'm done with this i'm i have to change if i want to have a better life so you go up you talk to the person at the restaurant she's not interested it's weird she's with her family and her friends and it's awkward and like okay bye nice to meet you you go back to your friends and maybe some tease you maybe some are like it's it's all right you know and it's weird for 5 minutes and then you continue your meal and everything's fine right you're mm-hmm. not going home crying yourself to sleep it's just it just is and I think when you learn that everything's okay, like it's not the end of the world to fail. Look at our our culture, right? It starts in grade school where it's the grades, A, B, C, D, and F. You learn that failing is bad. So how does that, think about what mm, And that then something's wrong with child. them too. Yeah, right? You learn bad that. bad and there's something what, wrong with you. Yeah, look how kids are. They internalize, I'm not smart, right? Which is a self-image thing as opposed to, you know what? I'm not really that good at math compared to my other classmates. I can probably study a lot more and that will improve. So if people internalize, internalize there's something wrong with me or I'm not good at, or I'm not a certain way, or they're special, that affects the self, self-image in a way that can be quite damaging because it's like, it becomes like an identity, right? Mm. There's something wrong with me as opposed to this is something that's malleable and I can change. Mm. You know, this is something I've noticed in my clinical work, and I wanted to see if you've also noticed this. Um, when a patient or client's uh, diagnosis becomes their identity. That's a great example, right? Fibromyalgia. Uh, I have migraines, right? I am have a weak constitution. I'm sickly. You know, all of these things. You're, you're dead on. It becomes, it's for some people, it becomes a safety, the identity. Right. And that's mm. dangerous too. Because mm. even if it's not a good situation, at least it's the known. At least it's, it's not the, the unknown of like all the right. changes that might need to be made, all the pain that might have to be gone through to get on the other ends. Sure. Uh, and look, some people psychologically get a kind of identity that they never had prior in their life by being sick. Right. Mm-hmm. This is the classic child that learns by being sickly, they get love from mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's a little bit of the hypochondriac archetype psychologically, but these are the kind of people that sometimes learn that at least I have some kind of identity because in the other parts of my life, I'm just an average Joe. I'm a no, I'm a nobody, right? I'm invisible. I'm one of the cogs in the machine at work. I'm just another guy putting on his pants and his collared shirt and going to the office. But my diagnosis connects me with all these doctors, all these specialists. It gives you a source mm-hmm. of connection, ironically, mm-hmm. through disease, as opposed to through wellness and positive self-esteem. So mm-hmm. illness becomes an identity too, for some people. Mm. And it's particularly uh, disastrous in mental health diagnosis. Right. Because that becomes almost like a life sentence if you really believe in it, right? So if you get diagnosed, right. let's say, with an anxiety disorder or depression, now, if you if you stick to that, 
you could be thinking even when you're feeling okay, that you're actually anxious or that you're actually depressed and kind of becoming this almost like a, like a personality, uh, a self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy, like, oh, that's just rather than viewing it as it is like somebody who's dealing with symptoms of uh, depression, for example, not to say I'm a depressed person because right. that's an identity and that's very hard to break. You could be you could kind of trap yourself in that and there's no way out because, Oh, I'm just a depressed person. But to put it in the realistic level where I've, you know, experienced these symptoms in the past and then even thinking, Oh, but these things helped. And there was these times where I did actually feel really good. Oh, I wonder what I was doing during those times and kind of like letting yourself be free around that and not uh, tie like your sense of identity around a diagnosis, because that could be incredibly disastrous, you know, it could be very helpful too, because it could be very motivating. Someone has like that word. That's the thing. This explains my symptoms. All right. I'm going to go do something about it now. Finally. Yeah. So, but you're right. And I think, I I think a piece of why it's part and parcel of a lot of people or some people I should say is because some of that is tied to the mainstream medical model, right? Like if you're on an antidepressant for severe, moderate to severe depression, from a conventional medicine point of view, you probably always will be, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I have plenty of people that come in on antidepressants for a decade, and they were only supposed to be taking them for, let's say, six months. But after years, they develop the identity, I have depression, right? I have clinical depression. And after 10 years, it becomes even harder to disingrain that self-image. And it's fascinating for me seeing, you know, I've had a, I had a patient and she was on three kinds of antidepressants for over a decade. And three, three kinds of antidepressants was what it took just to be functional, mm. right? Just to be able to maintain a job, to pay her mortgage, et cetera. This is not someone who's loving life, able to have friends again, have a normal quality of life. This is just to get out of bed and work. And for most people like that in conventional medicine, that's never going to be reversible, right? That's just, you have moderate to severe depression, once you start developing a tolerance to certain medications, we'll add on another and we'll, we'll increase dosage. That's kind of the typical progression, like you know better than I do. And for her, it was fascinating seeing the day after about a year or a year and a half of treating her with these traditional Chinese medicine formulas where she stopped her antidepressants one by one over a period of months. And she said, you know, besides a little bit of fatigue, I don't feel down at all. And it's a strange thing, isn't it? That somebody who's believed that they need this crutch the whole time and then they're without it and they might actually even feel better sometimes, which could be very surprising. Look, and we weren't necessarily doing some deep soul work either. I was approaching it pharmacologically, but from a TCM point of view. And in fact, maybe those formulas were working on the exact same neurotransmitters as her antidepressants. But It's fascinating seeing just a different approach that's healing oriented versus symptomatically oriented. And while those antidepressants probably saved her life at that point, and so they were essential in the healing journey, it's fascinating seeing the identity change of I'm not a person who's depressed, right? That was a that was a functional state, like a disruption of normal homeostasis in the body. And a side effect, a symptom was clinical depression. But that was not something part and parcel of me, my genetic makeup or who I am or something even irreversible. But she would never hear that message from her psychiatrist. 
right? Mm-hmm. She had to see someone like me or someone like you to understand that that was a temporary state and it indicated a deeper dysfunction. But it wasn't that she is a depressed person or that she had clinical depression. It was a temporary dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And seeing that change in her was unbelievable to see. Mm. Yeah. And sometimes you don't even want to medicate the symptom away because it, it's, you know, the, the, the canary in the coal mine where it's, it's giving you a warning of something's not, not right in your life. Uh, it's, that's right. what they call, you know, situational depression where it just lasts for a certain period of months, whether it's from, uh, like grieving or big changes yeah. or stress, very stressful, uh, life situations. Um, sure. but it's part of the natural human experience of life to not always feel amazing all the time. Cause that's right. It's uh, unrealistic. Right. Okay. Another concept that I want to speak on. Um, you mentioned one of your videos, uh, choosing between the pain of discipline versus the pain of regret. So what what does that mean to you? The pain of discipline versus the pain of regret. So I think the quote is originally from Jim Rohn, a motivational speaker. And, you know, he says every day you have to choose between the pain of discipline or the pain of regret, meaning let's just reduce it to something physical like exercise and our weight. Every day I can wake up and be like, you know, my doctor says that if I work out four days a week, my blood values, my blood pressure, my physical energy, my sleep will all move in the right direction, but I just can't get myself to do it. Mm. I'm tired. You know, I get home at six and I have a long commute and then I'm tired and then I've got to do kid stuff. And how am I going to get myself to do this? And it's in those moments. And of course, it's harder during the bad phases of your life where things are hard and you're tired. When you need it the most. There are those moments when you need it. Exactly. When you need it the most, because it is easy to be a happy person when life is good right? It's just like, it's easy to treat someone nice who treats you nice. And you learn about your character in times of difficulty and darkness. And so the pain of discipline is those are the days or those are the phases of life, because it often comes in phases where you need to get yourself in the gym, that 45 minute session, four times a week, even though you have the newborn baby and you're up all night and you're trying to do you know good at your job to get the promotion for your family. Those are the times where you have to, you have to push And those are the times, ironically, when it's the hardest. So for some of us, particularly during the darkest phases of life, from my point of view, that's where you have to unfortunately push the most because life is already hard and you're not going to want to go to the gym, even though that's what you need. You're not going to want to save that extra $300 a month so that you have a financial cushion, even though you'd rather spend it by going out to get drinks and dinner with your friends every Friday. You're not going to want to Stop being such an introvert and go out there and try to make new friends because you moved home or you moved to a new city or you moved to New York and you're trying to make it. It's uncomfortable. But those are the times where you have to ask yourself in one year, if you think life is hell now, in one year, do I still want to be here, which is terrible and it sucks and it's hell? If not, you're going to have to suffer the pain of discipline or the pain of regret because in one year, barring unless you change something or unless there's divine intervention, which may happen, I hope it does in your life, chances are you're going to be in the exact same place. And a year will have elapsed with no progress and none of the things that you want to have happen. And 
if you sit and stew in that, just sit in that and think the last three months have been the worst of my life. Do I want to be here for another year? And that should make you uncomfortable enough to it lets begin a fire on your ass. On... Yeah. <laughs> that, right? Because if you think now is bad or the last three months are bad, try doing it for another one, three, five, 20 years. Cause you'll find people who've done it for a year. You'll find people who've done that for their whole damn lives. Mm. And they are miserable people. And a little bit of pushing would have made all the difference in terms of the savings or getting in the gym or just putting away that muffin and eating the healthy meal or forcing yourself to meditate or just just going back to school for two years while you have a full-time job. It's going to be hard. You're going to make a lot of sacrifices. You're going to be tired and cranky a lot of days. But in two years, you're going to be in a great spot. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's this uh, saying that you should meditate every day for uh, 20 or 30 minutes. But if you're extra busy and you have no time, then you should meditate for two hours every day. Exactly. <laughs> I think there's exactly, there's some right? kind of principle there where those are the times yeah. you need it the most. It's also the times where you realize that those uh, different, you know, techniques and uh, exercises that you do are some of the most healing things that you can, you can ever do. And they're right. within your own power too. It's not something that you need to buy even. It's just your own right. ability to regulate yourself. Right. Exactly. How would you um, go about, let's say you have like a client or a patient and they want to make some kind of lifestyle change because they know it's good for them, but they just keep hitting like a wall. They keep falling back into their old habits. How, how do you, how do you go through that process with them? What does that look like? So I would say two things. One is what I call resonance. And one is what I call the one minute rule. So in terms of resonance, let's just say, because we just talked about exercise and that's a hard habit for most people to do four days a week that has a lot of evidence for how much it will treat or potentially reverse or mitigate some of the main causes of death today, right? It's very non-esoteric. It's very grounded. So let's say exercise. If someone who has high blood pressure, high blood sugar, let's say their A1C does not look good and they're diabetic, and we know that resistance training will dramatically improve those values, but they cannot get themselves to do it. The two things I recommend are, number one, stop trying to do exercise that you don't actually like, right? Like if you don't like weightlifting, go for a run. If you don't like running, do weightlifting. If you don't like either, do yoga, do, I mean, there's hundreds of other kinds of exercise you could do that would still be better than just doing nothing. I think we get caught up in this corporate drone sort of mode where we think that we have to do weight, do things and live our life the way we see other people living their lives or doing things. And it's just not true, right? So one is resonance is what is the most excited way that I could go down this path, right? If it's physical exercise, let's just say I have to, right? Gun to my head, I have to exercise one hour a day, four days a week. Because my cardiologist says I'll be dead in a year if I don't do that. If that is, if those are your stakes, find the most enjoyable kind of exercise, even if it's just a brisk walk four times a week, right? So that's number one. I think too many people think, oh, I have to do this because it's cardio, right? I have to go run, but I hate running. So they, so they give never up the whole idea of movement, which is the exactly. important thing, and not the specifics of it as much. Right. So they give up the whole idea of movement and exercise. They, you know, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, as opposed to this something I can do that's exercise. 
that I'll like and I can get myself to do pretty regularly. Mm. The second thing is uh, just the, how do we call it? Let's just say the one minute rule. So when I moved back from living in China, my friend Jeff, who ended up becoming a doctor of Chinese medicine himself, stayed in China. And he enrolled at the, the Beijing School of Traditional Chinese Medicine. So when I came back, I was having a hard time reintegrating into life because I'd been living abroad for a while. And he said, well, why don't we do like a meditation challenge? And so we agreed that for the next two months, we would begin with just one minute of meditation per day. And rather than starting at 30 minutes a day, we would increase it by one minute. And we would do that every day as long as we could, basically. So day one was one minute. Day two was two minutes. Day three was three minutes. And as I got up to like 20 minutes, that's when it became like, that's when the resistance set in. Because, you know, you could do something for one minute, right? It's like brushing your teeth. But once you get up to like 30 minutes, then you're, there's like a chunk of your day that's missing. And if it's the morning, it's critical because you've got to get ready for work. And if it's the evening, it's just laziness. I'd rather watch TV. So eventually what happened was we got up to, I think, almost 90 minutes of meditation in one sitting just by betting that we could do one minute a day and increase it by one minute. Now, the crazy thing is for years, I've been trying to meditate even an hour a day, which to me is like a dedicated, serious meditator. And I never could. And I thought at the end, I was remarking, it's amazing that by adding one minute a day, I was able to do something that for a decade, I never could do. And I was able to do this by just with these small increments. So for the same exercise example, Maybe you've decided that going for a brisk walk after work is the thing that you can do. But you read a report on the New York Times that says you need to do it for 40 minutes a day for it to have benefits for your heart. But you're not going to do 40 minutes a day because you've never done this before. So what if you just did five minutes, right? I'm just going to go walk around my block. It's, it's 5 p.m. It's a beautiful sunset. I'm just going to even call my friend or I'm going to call my mom back for five minutes. And I'm just going to do a brisk walk around the block. And then I go inside and I can finish my night. Easy. Eventually, that becomes so easy to do because you don't have this kind of inner resistance to doing it. And so I find that for a lot of people, resonance, either finding the most enjoyable path to it or the one-minute rule of just starting with the smallest increment that you can do the most often will lead to greater incre increments. Mm. That's a really, really good point. I think it limits a lot of people from, from making those kind of habit changes because it's Sure. It could be really, it could be really uh, daunting. So that's something. It's perfectionism, that, right? Yeah. That's like, I'm going to do it right or I'm not going to do it at all. With my uh, patients and, and clients, I do the same thing where I say, uh, if there's like a mindfulness practice, you just, just five minutes, no problem every yeah. day, five minutes, and then you can increase it. My experience with that has been, if it's the right kind of practice or it's the right kind of exercise, it will, it kind of picks up momentum in and of itself because once you have that experience of, hey, like I was feeling pretty much in a funk, but I went for a five minute walk and now I feel a lot better. I should do that more often. It just becomes kind of obvious of why you, you see why you would do it. It's not like an abstract right. idea, like it prevents heart disease and things like that, which is very abstract. It's, yeah. oh, I just feel better when I walk or when I meditate, right. it makes my mind calmer. Oh, I saw the trees and I wasn't worried about work for once. And you, you see it's almost like you have to see the benefits before you're willing to really dedicate yourself to something because otherwise sure. where's the motivation coming from? Sure. 
from what maybe what one should do, but everyone knows what one should do and it doesn't right. necessarily make it happen. In fact, it <laughs> rarely does. <laughs> right. Information. People think that if only people had the right information, they would do all the things. And that's like the saying, if that were true, I'd be what rich, happy and hot, something like that. Right. Yeah, I've yeah. heard this quote somewhere, yeah. but yeah. obviously it's more about behavior and psychology than it is mm-hmm. about the right information, depending on the, population you're in mm-hmm. yeah that's incredibly true like uh most of our patients and clients I'm, I'm guessing for yours as well they they know what kinds of things to do not from like a like an herbalism standpoint of of treating themselves but from like their movement and mindfulness practices and their diet like most people the most average non-educated in nutrition specifically could give you a pretty good diet general plan. Oh, you know, sure. Eat lots of vegetables, make sure, you know, it's better quality, et cetera. So it's, it's not a lack of information. It's a lack of right. the ability to implement it. Yeah. And the ability to change, right? I mean, that's yeah. ultimately the million dollar thing is how quickly can you change who you've been in your prior incarnation in life? That's mm-hmm. the thing that's going to determine your future and who you become and mm. change is the hardest thing in the world because that's mm. everything you've known for the last decades. Mm. Yeah. And you get right into dealing with the hardest things of, of the mind there when you're trying to make that change, right. especially with the past and uh, one's own identity and beliefs and things like that. And it could be an incredibly yep. difficult process because a lot of those things, as you were mentioning before, are, brought on through childhood. So they're, they're almost like precognitive in some sense. So you really have to go deep and really, you know, find yourself. It's a cliche, but it's know thyself and you will know the universe and its gods says above the right. uh, Temple of Delphi. Is it the really Mm -hmm. interesting? No one ever tells you the second half of that. Mm -hmm. I find that part particularly interesting. Yeah. So we uh, we talked a little bit before about conventional medicine. I wanted to uh, discuss a little bit about things that you've noticed about where conventional medicine is lacking in general, the system um, yeah. or experiences of, of patients and clients. I think the most honest critique I have is purely that it is primarily symptomatically focused, mm. right? I don't have some personal opinion that medications are bad or pharmaceuticals are bad or vaccines are bad, anything like that. But my main criticism is that the main chronic diseases of our times, when you just go through the body, right, GI, anxiety, depression, uh, gynecological issues, um, the treatments are primarily symptomatic, right? When I have patients come in, it's basically, oh, my PCP or my specialist said, just take this medication. And if the symptoms keep coming back, just keep taking it. Well. What happens if the symptoms keep coming back for years? They just Mm. keep taking it. And the reason why that's a problem long-term is that there is no healing. And so eventually what I see is largely, not always, there's not a lot of healing in conventional medicine. And so what people have to do is that as long as they have acid reflux or GERD, they keep taking omeprazole or famotidine or whatever the medication of the day is. As long as they have clinical enough anxiety that it worries them, they take an SSRI or they take Zoloft. 
as long as they have depression, as long as they have migraines, as long as they have dysmenorrhea. I mean, I could, you know, I could go down the list for, for hours. And so what happens is in one year, there is no signs of healing or progression, meaning that if they stop that medication, you will never see a decrease in the frequency or severity of the symptoms. But I can almost guarantee in my practice that for those exact same internal medicine disorders, I can give the opposite promise to my patients that within a month to three months, you'll have less frequency, less severity. And for many of those, within three to six months, you'll have a 95% reduction, like acid reflux, where now they've been on omeprazole for a decade. Suddenly after three months, they have it one or two days a month. It's relatively minor. They don't need to take anything and they sleep fine. And from the perspective of someone who wants people to heal and go on with their life and not need any kind of medication, not need my treatment, not need my formulas and herbs, that's the goal, right? Or theoretically, that should always be the goal mm -hmm. because there is still pathology happening, right? Even if you're taking a medication, you know, you and I have people come in, they're like, oh, I don't really have many issues besides this one thing. And you find they're taking a sleeping medication every night. And they're like, oh, I don't have sleeping problems. I'm like, what do you mean? You take trazodone every night. Well, yeah, I take it every night. So I don't have sleeping problems anymore. And <laughs> I'm like, well, well, if you stop it, you have a sleeping problem. Oh, yeah, okay. And then, yeah, I'm taking this medication for my prostate, right? Nighttime urination. Well, I don't know. I don't have prostate issues, but I take, you know, whatever it is of the day, right? Maybe it's Flomax. Oh yeah, I don't have it, but but wait, but you need to take that or else you have nighttime urination three times a night or frequency and urgency. Yeah, but I mean, you know, and then on and on we go, this kind of circular logic. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's baffling that what I do can, and you have to always be careful of the legalese, can functionally reverse lots of these internal medicine disorders to the point where people no longer need these med medications. And why that's not common knowledge in conventional medicine, I don't know. But that to me is probably my most honest critique from a very grounded scientific point of view, that there are other options in the healthcare marketplace that can manage those symptoms and lead to a potential reversal of that condition where you don't need medicine anymore. Mm. That sounds like the, the ideal, you know, that should be driving those things. Yeah. And, um, uh... You know, the word like resolve or cure is like a, it's like a bad word for you were mentioning like from taboo. the legalese it's standpoint. Like, it's shocking how legally, right? It's shocking how mm -hmm. legally we have to be careful of treat, prevent, or cure. Right. But and it, it makes, it makes, it makes sense in the sense of, you know, people who are, are sick. That's like kind of what they want to hear that they could be cured right. because that's their fundamental desire. So right. they you know, they can be convinced into it or manipulated, et cetera. Sure. But I think every sure. physician should be thinking, how do I cure this person? It's not something that you should say because you, you can't make that kind of promise because right. medicine, you don't know what else life, is. health is completely uncertain. So you can never yeah. know for sure. You can't say for certainty, oh, if you take this, like in this amount of time, you'll be a hundred percent fine because we just don't know. Right. Even if it's by right. the book, even if it's the perfect formula, even yeah. if it's the perfect medication still yeah. might not work but you bring sure. up an interesting point where the that should be the goal in some sense is ha actually helping someone resolve those those issues um right i had patients that right. you know they were on medications that were were helping them a lot but they were afraid that they would have to be on them their whole lives and right. they felt the same way about herbs as well when i introduced herbs sure where sure. 
they asked me, oh, is this something that I'm going to need to take forever? And I said, ideally, no. Ideally, that's that's not the goal at all. This is right. And I've had my own patients say that, right? Mm-hmm. Is this something I have to take forever? And um, yeah. Mm. How do you make your life your medicine? That's a good one, right? Ultimately, I'll tell you a little sneak peek. This is going to be one of my books for sure. Is that but is that what you're gonna uh, call it? That's gonna be that's gonna oh, be a title. Oh, yeah. perfect! <laughs> so sneak peek, sneak Plugging peek. It. I don't know when that one comes out, but you know, ultimately, I think you know the highest. There's a great quote from a Chinese physician in ancient times, and he said, "The highest level of medicine is no medicine." Right, and what I take this to be is that ultimately, a life in perfect homeostasis and imbalance, where the yin forces and the yang forces, the work and rest the striving and the savoring are in harmony, the ultimate manifestation of that is in the physical and emotional body, which is health. And the highest level of medicine is no medicine, meaning that the way you eat, the way you live, the way you work, the way you sleep, the way you interact with people, your community maintains a baseline level of health that does not need medical treatment. Now, that is the aspirational ideal, right? That is the horizon that all of us should strive for and should reach towards. But for each of us, we have to reflect the same reason why someone may take omeprazole for their acid reflux, but then they go and have three cups of coffee every single day and two glasses of wine every night. And then they continue to have that for years and years and years or until the day they die. We have to sit down and reflect, why do I need three cups of coffee? Why do I need two glasses of wine? Well, I have the coffee really because I don't really look forward to anything about my day at all. And the cup of coffee is my like, oh, my little savor, my little pleasure that I love having first thing in the morning, in the afternoon, and maybe the late afternoon. It's just something I look forward to. Or maybe it's just physically, I'm exhausted. That's why I need three cups of coffee. And there's a lifestyle or a medical issue that we can treat so you're not exhausted anymore. And why do I need the two glasses of wine? Well, you know, my marriage kind of sucks. My marriage is on the rocks. And again, my aforementioned day in life is really kind of bleh. So I have nothing I really look forward to. And by the end of the day, after dealing with kids and dealing with work stress and dealing with my spouse, maybe even, all I want to do is sit down and have two glasses of wine or a couple of beers and watch the news or watch a movie. And so you can see in the way human beings live where that that little canary in the coal mine is, right? Because the canary in the coal mine, in my observation, starts with the spirit, the, the emotions, because they start off immaterial. They're invisible, right? It's a little bit of work stress, agitation every night. You know, I had a patient come in and he said, you know, I gained 30 pounds in a year purely because I was stressed out at work. And the way that that manifested was at the end of the workday, I just wanted to get some cheap Chinese food and a couple of beers and just watch a movie and relax. Well, he ate a lot of cheap Chinese food. He he drank a couple of beers every day for a year and he gained 30 pounds. So those were just symptoms. The weight gain was just a symptom of a deeper dysfunction in his Mm -hmm. life. And so if we can understand, you know, all illness and disease begins as some kind of imbalancing. The imbalancing starts subtle. It's the canary in the coal mine, the little seed of the great oak of health or disease. And the little seed is often, let's say some frustration in life. And you need to come home and smoke a cigarette, or you need to smoke weed, or you need to drink two glasses of wine, whatever the the addiction is, or maybe you decide to work 80 hours instead of 40 because your life has no purpose and meaning. And you just like working long hours because I don't have friends. I don't have anything. I don't have hobbies. I don't have anything else to do. 
So understanding how life has to be your medicine, unless you plan on taking medication for the rest of your life or being treated. But the highest level is that when your life creates such a state of homeostasis that it manifests in your mood, in good sleep, in healthy digestion, in all of the organ systems being online and not in a state of harmony or homeostasis versus pathology, that's when you've reached the ultimate pinnacle of wellness. Mm. I can't wait for that book. Definitely, definitely send me a copy whenever it's out. You got it. It's going to be a good one for sure. Yeah. I really liked master of the day and um, milking the pigeon. I think they're incredibly useful and simple too. Just very simple, simple, straightforward advice. Um, So I have to run in just a few minutes, but what are your thoughts on our couple last questions that we could really help people with? Yeah. So let's, let's see what would be the biggest. Okay. I got a great question to end uh, as always. Um, How do you think that being uh, aware of death affects your life? And is that something that people should be aware of? It's a good question. I think um, there's a great quote from Tuesdays with Maury. And he says, we're all born with a terminal illness. It's called birth. And that most of us just don't realize it. Because if we really lived like we were dying, then we would live our lives differently. And I think the most telling and prescient example of this is people who come in with cancer, where there is a real life or death battle at stake and underway. And the ones who choose to view it as an opportunity for healing and growth and evolution, you see that in their life, where they realize the clock is literally ticking to its completion or its ending of some kind. And if I don't do now what I've always wanted to do, then there will never be another opportunity for that. Mm -hmm. And because there is an actual stake, there is evidence that my life can end. That is the ultimate motivation and impetus to go do the things and become the person you've always wanted to be and follow and find your dharma and pursue that path of soul or of heart, whatever you want to call it. But for so many of us, we're in the same situation, but we just don't realize it. We don't know the time of death. We don't know the manner of death. We don't know how long it will take or how quick it will be. And the greatest tragedy is that we feel like we have a lot of time but we don't because we have this terminal illness called birth ironically and that the clock is actually always ticking and that a lesser manifestation of that is the quintessential midlife crisis where someone comes in a guy comes in at 43 and says you know what i'm buying a new car i'm going bungee jumping i'm going skydiving i'm thinking about leaving my wife and having an affair with this 28 year old in my office and it's like whoa 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 it's like slow your roll just what's going on here What's going on? And he says, you know, I wished I had done all of these things, minus the affair, all of these things all along. I wished I'd lived in China and studied with monks. I wished I'd gone to Japan and just stayed in a monastery, drinking tea and meditating. I wish I went to art school or medical school, or I didn't go to medical school and I went to acupuncture school. I wish is always how that sentence begins. And for so many of these people, that is their, that's the soul speaking, right? That's the gut speaking of what the essential self has always wanted to do before it was 
covered up by society or grandpa or mom or dad or by practicality, right? The adult voice. But that I wish is the soul saying, this is what I've always wanted to do. And if you can connect with that now, hopefully without a terminal illness listening to this, that will align you with the path of Dharma, the path of purpose, the path of your destiny. And I think for all of us, that should be the aspirational ideal. And that's the thing that you have to convince yourself of right now, that the clock is always ticking. Mm. Very, very wise words. Um, one of the uh, ancient philosophers, when asked what philosophy is, he said, it's the art of learning how to die. There's a, good one. a lot of profoundness and I, I find for myself um, just accepting that fact of life. It, it brings everything else into, into perspective and, and focus right. because your future doesn't extend forever. So you right. have to find some, some ways for yourself in the face of all that, that life is still significant. Life is still beautiful. Sure. Life is still joyous, even though there's suffering, even though there's pain, even though there's death. Um, so it's a, a very, very interesting capacity that we have as humans to be, to be aware of that. Uh, I don't think many other animals are, um, right. Of course they have, you know, their own grieving processes and things like that, but we have like an abstract idea that we have a certain amount of time. Um, right. and uh, as you said, the, uh, I think there was a Heraclitus quote is a, a ancient philosopher. He said, um, your sin is birth and your punishment is death. <laughs> Which is like a really epic way of, of saying, yeah. uh, saying, saying what you said. And the a corollary that I've been thinking about is this uh, fear or aversion to like growing older. And right. I, I think the solution to that is if you weren't older, you'd be dead. Right. So. And look, fear Listening to fear is the reason why your life will stay the same as it's always been, why you'll never do the things you want, why you'll never become the person you want or could become, why you'll never do and live that life that that is your ultimate potential. And I think for all of us, we have to understand that fear is always going to be there. It's like one of the birdies in the shoulder. Mm. And if you can ignore that or just push through that or not not let your actate not let your actions be dictated by the fear but let them be dictated by the potential of what could be that's what will help you really live a life well lived and at the end of your life you can look back and say that was worth it mm. and having that you know that personal legend that that vision forward is what gives you the answer to the fear right because if you don't have that's the right. thing you're aiming towards it's just going to be a lot of punches coming down on you with no hope in sight, basically. Exactly. If there is no inner vision or inner purpose or inner calling, then the logical mind comes in and says, why would I become self-employed? All of the people in my family or my extended family, they all went out of business and their lives were ruined. Why would I take that risk for XYZ thing? It never works out. But with an inner calling, it's like you have this nuclear reactor of energy inside of you that is feels like you're guided. And when you feel like you're guided, you feel like there's a purpose for your life and for what you're doing. And it feels like things may di be difficult, 
but there's the possibility and there's a good likelihood that I can't fail because I am guided. And that is a surreal feeling to have that sensation in your body and that there is an inner calling pushing you, which supersedes and is stronger than the voice and the presence of that fear in life, which will always be there. Mm. Very, very well said. Dr. Alex Hine, how can people find your work? Yeah, the best way for people to get in touch is they can either just Google Dr. Alex Hine. It'll bring me to my website, my practice. I take on a limited number of new patients every week. They should be able to find my books on Amazon and my YouTube channel with the same title. Um, and they can always reach out if they want to get in touch. And uh, that's probably the best way going forward. All right. Thank you for this uh, incredibly epic conversation. I'm actually quite excited that when I'm editing it to listen back and, and take some notes, there's some very wise things said. Thank you again. It's always a, it's always a pleasure to speak. Yeah. Thanks for having me here, Dr. Bogdan. And we'll, uh, we'll have to do a episode three soon. Yes, we shall.